This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon, wherever you may be. On this here, LA, it's a lovely Sunday morning. Guys, blue skies, it's great. So uh, just here talking pets. Anything you want to talk about, now's the time. Here on Pet Life Radio, you can get a hold of me by, oh, if you're here listening to me, you're probably already on the app. So therefore, all you gotta do is click on the shows where you're there. Uh, just type away. And uh, if you have a picture or your pet with you, that's even better. As you know, I always say, pictures worth a thousand words, a live video where I get to see you in action with your pet. Yeah, that's worth a hundred thousand words. And if you are not, you can always get a hold of me, 877-385-8882. So if you are shy and you don't want to be seen on camera with me and your pet, you can always just pick up the phone, 877-385-8882. Here on Instagram, you're here already. Um, I'm waving to you. If I miss some waves, type away. We uh, definitely love the questions. Hello, Tammy. So uh, I just talked to Joey. <laughs> Tammy's my cousin. So a lot of good stuff going on and some really good things to talk about. Love your questions. So, um, oh, thank you. So his favorite his birthday, huh? That's good. So a um, couple of things. First of all, I have to say, so as you know, many of Friday and Wednesday are my shorter days, whatever that means. And uh, so I, uh, shorter, it's all relative. I still, I book myself usually from like 10 to one. That's my standard, 10 to one. And then by the time calls coming in, I say, okay, well, I'll, I'm already booked solid, so I'll see you at uh, 945. I come at 945. Next call comes in. Well, I go, before you know it, I'm there anyway from 9 o'clock. But Friday, there were so many walk-ins, and I have no idea how this happened. But I had when I walked in about 10 to 10, there were already 10 people waiting to see me, which is crazy. And then at one point, you know, me and my Frenchies, I had it, people thought it was like a, I was running a Frenchie special. At one point, there were six French bulldogs in the waiting room, all separate separate parents waiting to be seen. And uh, people looking at me, is this? Are they that popular? And I guess they are. But anyway, it was really really fun. I I, I must have seen I don't know thirty five, maybe even forty cases. That it was insane. I got out of there by after five. So, but it was fun. A little stressful, but certainly fun. And um, it's really cool. And I'm going to post it. I hope today or tomorrow. I had a case come in. Uh, wait till you see this. It's unbelievable. So it is a 12-year-old dog, comes in 60-something pounds with the, the history of a huge tumor. And they, the emergency doc recommended, based on the dog's age, the fact that she was really, really weak, that they should put her to sleep. And I, you know, they did blood work. They sent me the blood. I said, let me see the blood work. So the packed cell volume, which is the percent of red blood cells circulating in the blood, Again, the red cells carry oxygen to the tissues, was very low. Normal is 36, 37 to 55%. You get down below 25%, you start worrying about anemia. 20%, really worried. By 15%, you're looking at 100% transfusion. And, and this dog was at 18. But interestingly, the rest of the bloods were, were actually pretty darn good. And the x-rays you could see, and I'm going to share the x-rays, a humongous, it's a mass basically taking up the entire abdomen. There was no room for intestines pushing up against the stomach, which explains why the dog was vomiting. And I said, well, again, most likely, 
Not that the dog read the book, but most likely there's going to be a splenic tumor. And if it's isolated to just the spleen, it can be removed. It's, it's worth a try. Let's see what happens. So we got the permission. We were I, ideally would try, try to transfuse. We no one locally had some blood for us, but we did the surgery. Surgery successful. Open this dog up. Wait till you see the spleen. This is a six and a half pound tumor. It's bigger than a basketball, a pro size basketball, and way heavier. It's unbelievable. So anyway, of course, as with my last case, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Check the liver. Liver totally clean. The intestines totally clean. Well, we got to get this thing out and uh, give this dog a chance. So anyway, here it is. We did this on Wednesday. So I already spoke to the owners this morning. The dog is starting to get up and walk around. Uh, they're starting to eat and drink. They're feeding it some broth and some obviously antibiotics and stuff like that. And this little old girl is, I mean, considering what she was carrying around in her abdomen is doing amazingly well. So um, these are the success stories that I love because doing things like this and truly, you know, like I always say, I, look, I have no ego. But the truth is usually pets get well, you know, it's, it's, it's generally for veterinarians, in spite of us, not because of us. And, and here was a case that, that I, I would have said, this is because of me. It's these hands that actually saved this dog's life, especially since the emergency doc wanted to put it to sleep. So, I mean, that, that's pretty amazing. And I don't know how much time we'll be able to give her. Most likely going to be what's called hemangiosarcoma, which is a highly malignant tumor. It's going to spread. At this point, as I said, the liver, intestines, the abdomen is clear. The lungs, which took x-rays, of course, before surgery, lungs were clear. So I have no idea. You know, I, my crystal ball is gone. So I don't know. You know, as I said, I can't tell. I mean, they say the, the low guesstimate would be three months, even with successful surgery, before it. Uh, it's going to spread. Others say it could be, I've had cases that went over a year, year and a half, actually. Dogs are 12. So if we if he gets to 13 and a half and he's obviously a good sized dog, that's great. So it's really, really something. Anyway, request. Beth, do you want me to be, give me a thumbs up if you want to request. Uh, because last time I did this, you didn't want, you said, no, no, it was a mistake. So if you hit the wrong button, let me know. Uh, give me another thumbs up if you want and I'll, um, I'll accept the request. So, um, ah, good. So, Del Doyle, my dog has bacterial yeast infection, or I guess ear, two types of drops, but having a hard time getting ear drops in. So, all right, let's talk about ear infections. So, first of all, ear infections, very, very, very common in dogs. I would say it's one of the more common things we see, and especially this time of year, which is allergy season. And there is a delicate balance in the ear between yeast and bacteria. And interestingly, they usually keep themselves in check. So, in a normal, healthy ear, you might find some beast bacteria, but they're about the same. They're controlling their own infection. However, when that balance is upset, usually it's the yeast winning out over the bacteria. And then we get these really disgusting ear infections. And um, it's pretty common. So I don't like using drops. And I'll tell you why. First of all, as you see, it's hard to do. Secondly, most ear medicines come with a long nozzle. So I want you to hear me out because this is very important. Something I learned Several years ago, when I went to a conference on ears, well, I was one of the talks at one of my conferences, and this guy was fantastic and made tons of sense. So much of the problem is down deep into the ear canal. So when you are holding the bottle up, all right, and you're counting drops, five drops, seven drops, whatever it is, if you can count the drops, that means you're putting them above the entry point to the long 
vertical ear canal. And there's oftentimes to breathe air and you're not getting to the root of the problem. So if you can count the drops, there's no guarantee that the drops are getting to where they are. Now, let's look at the other side of the coin. The coin is that long nozzle where you put down in the ear, okay, and you squeeze the bottle. How are you going to count the drops? You can't see the drops coming out. You have no idea how much you're delivering. So basically, I mean, this is so practical. It's crazy that four of us haven't been doing this from years ago. But in fact, one of my cousins is an ENT, human ENT. And what they started doing for kids is a little pump thing on the end of a long nozzle. So that instead of the, the instructions might be give three pumps. And they already knew how much medicine was delivered with each pump. And they were great. And I actually was testing it in the veterinary market. I thought it was a great idea. But of course, veterinarians didn't want to do it. And he gave up trying to market to veterinarians. Great idea. So here is the less expensive alternative, which makes tons of sense. So the little one cc syringes we use, like insulin syringes called tuberculin syringes, are very skinny. So what this guy says is use the right, the correct medication, but instead of drops or instead of squeezing, which you can't count anything, what you do is you put in a measured amount of medication, starting with a small dog might get 0 0.2 to 0 0.3 ml, all right, which might be four or five drops, up to a big dog might be eight-tenths of a cc, or maybe a huge dog, like, like a giant breed, might get a full ml. And now you fill your syringe. Now you put the syringe down in the canal as you would the long applicator tip, and now you push down on that. So now you know exactly how much you're delivering. And because you're putting it down into the ear, you're delivering the correct amount. So what I would recommend doing, depending on how large your dog is, and I don't know why you need two drops. I would like to know if you can, Give me the two types of drops because most of the ear drops that we use are a combination of antibacterial, antifungal, and antibacterial. So therefore, you should only need one. So I'm very curious to know what was being given and then also how many drops. I need to know the size of your dog. Once I have that, then I will help you determine how many mLs and you should ask your doctor for a couple of tuberculin syringes. After you use them, by the way, just by practicality, rinse them really well and don't let them dry with the plunger already pushed in. We'll keep the plunger out to let it dry because that rubber tip at the end of the plunger will often get stick inside the actual syringe and you won't be able to use it anymore. So um, anyway, that would help me. Tell out of place, five-year-old. Let's go to that in a minute. I think there was another one coming in. No, no, no. Hey, Josh. All right. So tell out of place, degenerative, my dog is five years old. So Here's the thing. When it comes to patelloluxation, there are four grades, grade one, two, three, and four. And also we see this more commonly in small breeds, the very small breeds, but we can see it in any dog, but typically it's the small dogs, you know, the Papillons, the Pomeranians, the Maltese, the Yorkies, the little mini poodles, Pomeranian, all those. They're the ones that typically have MPL, medial patelloluxation. So grade one, picture this. First of all, I'll, I'll kind of show you, if you looked at your knuckles here, the space between the knuckles, this is much shallower than this. The kneecap, the patella sits right in that femoral or patellar groove, and it is attached. It starts with the patella tendon coming from the muscle group, the quads, all right? And then it rides over the patella, and then the patella becomes a patellar ligament, and that inserts on the tibial crest. And normally from the quadriceps muscle group through the knee, femoral groove to the tibial crest where it inserts, it's usually a straight line. Think of a crease 
coming down the center of your of your slacks. Okay. Now, in these small dogs, a couple of things are, are in error, things that are uh, abnormal. Number one, the groove, the patellar groove is usually shallower, and the wall on the medial aspect is shorter than the wall. Okay, so this wall is shorter than this wall, so the tendency now of the patella is to slip off. Also, what we have is the insertion, the tibial crest is usually anatomically more medial. So the pull now comes straight down from the quad group over the, and then instead of going straight down, it, it cuts inside medially, thus pulling the patellar off. Okay, now that's the anatomy. So we have four grades. Grade one, the patellar is usually in the groove. It can be pushed off, right, manually with a relaxed knee, and then it pops right back on. Nothing to do. Don't worry about it. That's a grade one. Grade two. Grade two is when you push it off the groove, and the, meaning the doctor would testing it, it might stay out for a couple of steps, but it's, it spends most of its time in the groove. Again, most of us would say, you don't have to do surgery on that. Now, grade three. Grade three is when it's actually spending way more time outside the groove. It could still be reduced. I could still push it back in the groove, but as soon as I let go, it pops back on its own. That's a grade three. That's surgery. And grade four, it's been out of that groove so long it forms a false joint just medial to the groove and you cannot move it. That's 100% surgery. So other criteria to do surgery is, is there arthritis that is progressing? Because if so, then yes, you want to ideally have surgery. It also, it helps them with their gait, but it also will help slow down the progression of the arthritis. And the surgery is a, a twofold, threefold. Number one, of course, we need to deepen the groove. Then we need to transpose. We have to move that tibial crest over laterally so it sits directly under the quadricep muscle group. So it doesn't have that natural pull anymore to want to pull that kneecap medially outside of the groove. And lastly, a joint imbrication, just basically tightening up the joint capsule over the newly corrected, and that'll also help keep the kneecap in place. It is a surgery that is most times very successful, usually done by a surgeon, a board-certified surgeon. I don't do that surgery. I have one of my boarded surgeons come in and do it, but these dogs do really, really well. So if it's out of place most of the time, you're going to have a degenerative joint disease, DJD. Therefore, I would recommend five years old, if it's a grade two and a half, three or four, three, especially a three or four, it should be fixed. Okay. With that, Lexi, uh, we're going into our break. Um, I'll stay here during the break on my Instagram here on Pet Life Radio. Don't go away. Right back after the break and get here some questions. I'm sure you must have questions, things you want to talk about because everybody can share this and everybody wins. It's a big benefit to all. So we'll be right back after these short messages. Do not go away. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. 
Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> All right, so we're back here. We're talking about collapsing trachea. Uh, you you got to hear this because it's very common in the very small breeds. Uh, again, it's the Pomeranians, it's the Yorkies, it's the Maltese, it's the Poodles, the Maltipoos, all these. And they'll get something where their trachea collapses. It's weaker tracheal rings or a redundant dorsal tracheal membrane. And you hear them. They go through these fits and you could see they're stressed. And they tried all sorts of things. And they've tried to put stints in inside. When the stints expand, it puts too much pressure on the wall of the trachea and the trachea wall blood supply is, is constricted and the tissue dies. Disaster. They've tried to stuff on the outside and they just attach so like a, a thing on the outside. Again, the suture points, disaster. It, it is such a sensitive tissue. Nothing's really worked. I was telling a story of one of my former technicians went on to veterinary school at UC Davis did a surgical residency, coming out of, got, became a board-certified surgeon. And when she graduated, started working on some techniques for tracheal collapse surgery. And I talked to her, I don't know, a year, year and a half later to see how she's doing. And I said, so what happened? How have you been uh, successful with that, that new technique? She goes, candid, it just didn't work. It, it's really, really a tough thing to say. Now, the good news is it sounds worse than it is in the vast majority of cases. Now, I'm in my 40th year of doing this, and I've had two, maybe three dogs in those 40 years of seeing hundreds with tracheal collapse that ultimately died or were put to sleep because of the tracheal collapse. So sounds terrible. It stresses us to hear it. It stresses them to have it happen, but it's usually not deadly. I would say anything you do to keep them calm, so any calming, uh, the Hykodan syrup also, it's a cough suppressant. It does keep them calm. Make sure there's no infection. It's usually worse early morning and late night, just like a tracheitis, a kennel cough. And um, it is what it is. I think keeping them really calm is when it starts and they feel this problem, they have breathing, they try harder to breathe. The harder they try, the more problems. So anyway, that's kind of what it is. Okay. A 42 pound lab terrier mixed with ear. So I would say, oh, I need to know what two medications. My hunch is there is one medication that you can get away with. And um, I also want to get to this heart murmur. So Amon, did you tell me why the caudal abdominal surgery? I need to know that. Ah, uh, male cat with Down's kidney disease, I get renal food. So yeah, I need to know what, what was the surgery? Because that will explain things. Most surgeries done in the caudal abdomen are going to be bladder surgeries. And you do a bladder surgery because of stones. And stones can cause blockage. And the blockage you get this backup. Okay. Momentumax. Okay. That's, oh, that's good. If it's only the Momentumax, that's a great medication that takes care of both. I got six different conversations going on at the same time. Let me finish real quick with the renal. So, oh, and my conosol. You shouldn't need, unless my conosol oral, if it's in the ear, Momentumax has an antifungal. So I don't know if you need both. So, uh, oh, 70 pounds, which one was 42? Oh, so let's go back. I, I was mixing up all these dogs here. So if it's 70 pounds, then I would use 0.8 ML gets into Brooklyn syringes of the Momentumax. And that way you put the, the syringe down as deep as you can in the ear. Maybe, you know, it doesn't be that much, just so where, the, where you pass most of the longitudinal canal, and then you put the whole thing in the uh, ear, the syringe. That way you're delivering the correct amount and you're getting it in the right place. 
when you're counting drops and you got that thing up here and the ear canal is here and you're going one, two, three, four, no wonder it's not working because it's not getting to where it needs to get. So, and also always start with cleaning the ear really well first, because what you don't want is you don't want to have the drops going on top of all the debris. You got to get the debris out. So as far as the renal disease, maybe there was something I'm surprised they, they did a surgery without knowing what they were doing surgery for. And if it was just kidney, you know, it's hard for me to see. I didn't see the x-rays. I didn't see the ultrasound. So I can't comment, but it does seem strange just to open it up. Look, see uh, just that. They said they saw something on his abdomen. What did they do after the surgery? Did they remove anything? But let's say it was something real and it was putting pressure on the bladder. There was a backup of urine coming from the kidneys into the bladder, but then it couldn't get all. So it was putting back pressure on the kidneys. That would raise the enzymes. Now that whatever it is is resolved, now everything's working fine. So I would have no hesitation if the kidneys are fine. Now, do we know that the kidneys are fine because of the renal diet? And therefore, to stop the renal diet, might you be opening up a can of worms and they'll get bad again? It's a tough question. So, you know, you can try, I'll tell you what you can do is sort of a compromise. Oh, it's a cat. It's a cat, six-year-old cat. Well, look, we know that cats have a tendency to having kidney disease. So I would be one of the last half full, hopeful that the reason why the kidney values are good now are because of the diet. And if that's the case, and we know that cats have a tendency to get kidney disease, then my recommendation is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you are on a good diet and renal diets are good and the cat's doing well and the values are back to normal, be thankful and just keep on, as long as the cat likes it, keep feeding that diet. That would probably be the smartest thing to do. I don't know if I want to run the risk of taking them off only to find out that the reason why the kidneys were doing better was because of the diet. And now you're back to square one and you may not get the same success rate once the kidneys get bad again. So, um, okay. So that's my thought on that. Now let's talk the ears. So you're going to go in. I would hold off on the Momentic Max for now. Get the syringe for a big 70-pound dog, about 0.8 cc's. It's what I would recommend for one of my 70-pound patients. Of course, I can't tell you exactly what to do, but that's what I would recommend to one of my patients or my clients, actually. Of course, I would tell my patient if you listen to me, but my patients never listen to me. So where else was? There was another good question. Ah, Okay, right. And I agree. An orthopedic specialist did not recommend surgery. So if he's one or two, then I would totally agree. Uh, heart murmur. What can you do for heart murmur? Uh, loaded question you're asking me. So first of all, as with the knees, different grades, there are six grades of heart murmurs and, uh, and all based on how loud, how prominent the murmurs are. A grade one, two, three, four, five, and six. Now, grade one and two, it's a, if there's no clinical disease, everything is normal on the animal, then I would just watch it. If there's coughing, a grade three, if it's a loud enough murmur, and maybe you start noticing some exercise intolerance, maybe there's some coughing, then I would highly recommend electrocardiogram to start, but better yet, an echocardiogram. Seems like the EKG or ECG electrocardiogram and the x-ray is being replaced, rightly so, by the echocardiogram. Because those, you really can't, you, when you do an ultrasound, which I mean, a, a EKG, you are getting the electrical activity and that's about it. Yes, there are certain things we see with the larger chambers and how it makes changes on the, on the EKG. You get to see more rhythm disturbances on the EKG than you can actually how the heart is functioning as an organ. Then uh, the x-ray can just give you the size. Now, when you see a large heart, how much, for example, of that large ventricle is wall versus how much is chamber? Can't tell on an x-ray but you can 
on an ultrasound, a cardiac ultrasound or an echocardiogram. You can actually measure pressures going in and out through the valves. You can look at the valve leaflets. You can see if there's any uh, deposits of calcium on the leaflets. You can see if they're closing properly. You can look at the pulmonary artery pressure. You can look at the strength of the contraction of the ventricle, how much of the chambers are wall and how much are chamber itself. So there's so much more you can tell. Plus an EKG is being done while the, that's why I call it an echocardiogram. You're doing both. So it is much more effective as a diagnostic tool. It is highly recommended, mostly done by board certified veterinary cardiologists. However, I do know some general practitioners that have taken courses and could do an echo, but I have a cardiologist come into my office. We have them do the echo. It's expensive, but it's very worth it. You get what you pay for because it is so much more accurate as far as diagnosing a problem and knowing what's best to use to treat the problem. So if the murmur is either greater than a two, meaning three, four, five, six, uh, by the way, six, that's bad news. You can usually feel it. All right. A five and six, you can maybe feel, but you can put up your ear against the chest and you can hear it. You can actually hear the murmur without a stethoscope. That's a problem. And with those, I imagine you're going to see a large heart on x-ray or if there's clinical signs. Clinical signs, the most common things we see first are exercise intolerance and coughing. If that happens, then yes, I would recommend the echocardiogram. All right. I think we got to everything. All right. So there you have it. Um, if you have any questions, you want to reach out to me anytime during the week. Uh, you can reach out to me here on Instagram. Or you can send me a message. All right. And uh, here on Pet Life Radio, send me questions during the week, either to J Dr. Jeff at PetLifeRadio.com. Just send them to Pet Life Radio and Mark will forward them to me. Um, these questions are great because it gives me a lot of things to talk about on our next show. And of course, not that I have trouble talking, but <laughs> except my voice. But other than that, and uh, but I'll be, uh, for those, I'll be back. In the, oh, I'm going away tomorrow. I'm going to do something I haven't done. <laughs> in probably close to 40 years. And I actually, my good friends has a cabin up on the lake in Lake Arrowhead. So me and a couple of guys are going up for a, a day and a half. I pulled out my ski, which I think I used for the last time before this in vet school. So going on a lake, hope to have some fun. I'm hoping it's like riding a bike. You just don't forget how to do it. But I do snowboarding, so I, I, I'm probably going to remember. And I used to do a lot of it with my skiing. So anyway, uh, we'll let you know. We'll, we'll report next week <laughs> and uh, how much, hopefully, fun it was up on the lake. Questions, send them to me. Have a great week, everybody. And hopefully, we'll be here same bad time, same bad channel next week here on Cut Life Radio. Once again, thanks to Mark, our producer. And uh, we'll see you soon. Bye. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.